welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, wenn du mich siehst, dann weine. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon, Pickle It All, Maddox. How are you, Simon? How are you doing pickling away, are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm pickling. I enjoyed the melody of, of your Pickle It All. It's, it sounds like a, it's a ringtone in the making, that. Um, <laughs> I know it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's Very much so. Pickling season is upon us in terms of I ordered a load of British vinegars. Um, so I've been pickling old school style, done some onions, done some eggs. You like a pickled egg, Nick? I don't like the idea of them. I guess I like eggs. I'll be honest, the last pickled egg I had was about 10 years ago, mm-hmm. and it wasn't memorable, but it wasn't awful, so I, I guess a pickled egg wouldn't hurt. Pickled onions, I'm definitely not a fan of. But You don't like pickled onions? I can't say I do, now. Well, there we go, listener. That's the end of the show, and uh, <laughs> I'm never coming back. Enough is enough. <laughs> Who knew that the straw that would break the camel's back was pickled eggs? None of the other weird shit I've said over 88 episodes. Just the, the pickled egg comments. I mean, it's mind-blowing to me. You are a pork pie connoisseur, a, a monster of the breed, and you've never put the crunchy, vinegary contrast of the pickled onion against your pork pie. I'm not saying I haven't done that. I'm just saying I wouldn't, given the choice. The pickling stuff in Britain is really just to have bar snacks that are... <laughs> slightly more nutritious than the bag of peanuts or the pork scratchings. Yeah. I think that's the concept behind it. I will say that my mother-in-law tends to pickle things, but she does more wholesome things like vegetables. So we have jars of pickled vegetables, which I don't like either, so they just sit in the basement, <laughs> um, hidden away in the dark. But this is what's nice about it, it's that sort of blitz spirit. Like I know that worst comes to worst. I've got some stuff in, in, in my cellar that ain't going to go off. And you mentioned bar snacks, and that is the other uh, bit of small talk I have for this week's episode. I have a bar now uh, in my cellar. Our neighbours were like, do you want a bar? And we were like, what? <laughs> yeah. He's like, do you, do you want a bar? Uh, follow me. And so we followed him into his house, into his cellar, and there was a bar. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to throw it away unless you guys take it. And so we took it. Uh, sanded it down, spray painted it black, and uh, redid the top in a matching sort of, yeah, I'm not not metallic grey, but a sort of a grey. I can't think of the right term now. Carbon, something like that. Gunmetal grey. It's, it's approaching gunmetal. Yeah, it's, it's it matches our downstairs yeah bar slash kitchen, um, and yeah. So now I've got pickled eggs for my bar, which is. I'm ready. Is it a tiki bar or is it a bar bar? I mean, it's it's not a tiki bar, uh, that's for sure. Uh, there is some sort of golden glitter wall um, and there are lights, but I wouldn't say tiki. Um, oh, no, I mean the shape of it because you have different bars, don't you? you like okay. Have- yeah, it's, it's a half, like a 90 degree bend. Is that a tiki bar? It's half a tiki bar, right? If a tiki <laughs> bar is like one of them bars that has like a circle and it's got a some kind of palm leaf ceiling roof type thing on the front i was thinking that like it was more like a um, a circular bar than a, a, a long cross the room kind of bar that you would see in a pub for instance i mean it's, it's rounded and i could serve all drinks on it it's a bar <laughs> that's that'll do me that'll yeah. do me and uh what kind of offerings do you have aside from the old pickled eggs and pickled onions i'm hoping there's some alcohol in there pickled eggs pickled onions uh there is um there's some Fruit in vodka that's brewing away, bubbling away. Not bubbling. It's not doing anything, really. Uh, it's just sat in vodka with sugar. So that'll be there'll be shots as well. And uh, there's a fridge full of beer. And that's about as far as my cocktail's going to go. How about mm-hmm. when I come back from holiday, we have a think about it. 
and I'll uh, I can get the ingredients. I get my cocktail shaker, and I'll come and make cocktails on your bar. Yeah, of course. It's a very easy concept. Invite the guys over. Basement bar breaking. I think that would be the way. It, it needs to be it needs to be christened as a as a bar venue. Uh, so let's do I'll, it. I'll even bring a waistcoat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> one for everyone yeah we all get to wear waistcoats no no only for me no one else okay. can have a waistcoat next sequin waistcoat collection comes out oh sequins that'd be <laughs> nice yeah i'd have some of that action yeah yeah deal i haven't got uh, anything as exciting to talk about as a bar but i'll tell you what simon mm-hmm. i am on holiday tomorrow so i'm basically i'm like it's like i've broken up from school okay the teachers let me bring in my games today, <laughs> and uh, we all we all played with our own board games. And now, which I don't think is a thing that they do in schools anymore, which is a shame. <laughs> but it was a highlight of my education. And uh, yeah, now I'm on holiday for two weeks. And honestly, I've stopped caring about everything. Don't care anymore. <laughs> Nothing you can say to me is going to make me care. I've I've turned off all all my ability to have any empathy, and I'm just going to go in a downtime mode. I've already started drinking. I'm feeling very <laughs> relaxed already. Well, we're going to be talking about climate change in a little bit, so we'll see. Don't care. <laughs> Don't care about it. It doesn't matter to me. Whatever happens. Who cares? Actually, I do I do really care. Oh, <laughs> oh, this holiday thing isn't as, as easy as it looks, is it? This is Nick in full psycho mode. Fuck the world. <laughs> Let it burn. I don't know which emotion to follow next. <laughs> I, I mean, I am going to look forward to not having to get up at six in the morning. I'm going to Newcastle on Thursday, so okay. that's something to look forward to. So be steak bakes and... And ice creams and beaches and all the other lovely stuff. Pork pies, no pickled onions though. And then I'm fighting a seal knot battle in two weeks. Oh, are you? Okay. Yeah, I'm, on my birthday weekend, I'm going to go reenact the Battle of Edge Hill. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> of course. Opening, opening re- battle of the uh, English Civil War. Ah oh, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. Requires absolutely no uh, explanation to the listeners. Everyone knows about the Battle of Edge Hill. Was it Edge Hill? <laughs> yeah, it's Edge Hill. Yeah. Okay. Open a battle. It started on time. Literally, there, there was an agreed time in which the battle was going to start, and uh, it was quite quite a friendly affair. When was kickoff? Um, uh, I think it was like three o'clock or something. Okay, yeah, just like the Premier League. <laughs> and then they all fired some <laughs> cannons, and then that was the start of the battle. It was all very polite. By the end of it, it wasn't as polite. After like ten years of it, it wasn't as nice. But um, Edge Hill certainly nice. I'm just looking forward to getting drunk in a field. Mm-hmm. I've already looked up how expensive a bottle of port is, so I'm going to buy a bottle of port. How much is a bottle of port at the moment? It's about 15 euros. Okay, that's all right. That's all right, I thought. Yeah, a bit of port, a load of beers. Um, just sort of ready, really ready for a holiday. And you're going to take home one of those travel kegs that you can buy at the airport. <laughs> like nine litres of Bitburger. <laughs> oh, jeez. My Bitburger experience on last weekend's really put me off. I'm not having any of that malarkey. Dear me. Um, yeah, but before I go on holiday, I've got quite a weird question, but one mm-hmm. that I think is worth considering. Have you ever been listening in a conversation with a German or you've been listening to something on television or listening to something on a podcast or a radio in German, right, and got bored halfway through the sentence? <laughs> yeah. Like, so someone's telling yeah. you something and you're like, I just can't concentrate on this sentence. It needs to end and I want a verb. And I want you to hurry up and tell me what it is you're saying. Like, I was listening to a podcast today and they were talking about, oh God, I just, it was one of them conversations where you really want to, I really want to understand it, but I just had no interest. I think they were talking about, it was like some altercation someone had had with somebody and they were telling the story behind it. And it was just, it felt like the same information being repeated. I'm not sure if it was just the nature of the podcast (laughs) or the nature of German communication, but the same sort of 
key words were repeated and the story just never seemed to get anywhere because it was just constant descript really long descriptions mm-hmm. really long sentences lots of commas and i just like i just turned the podcast off i was like i can't be asked <laughs> this story might have an amazing end of it and it's not the first time i've had that i've been in conversations where someone's talking to me about something and i'll start daydreaming in the middle of their sentence and then it, then it only come out once i hear the verb and then i've missed all the adjectives and the mm. prepositions and i'm like oh is that just because I'm tired, do you think? Or is, is this has been happening more recently? But I, I think tiredness is going is to hurt, of course. But yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the, the nature of, of German. That verb at the end is a game changer. Um, and waiting patiently for it in the face of 30, 40, 50, 60 words, like mm-hmm. that can be <laughs> quite, quite a traumatic experience when German is not your first language. And as you say, you talked about sort of a confrontation and being the case they were talking about. And so you you don't know about the degree, the severity Mm -hmm. of this confrontation until you get that verb. Was Mm -hmm. it shouted? Was it punched? Was it attacked? Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, how excited do you need to be until you find out? Yeah, naturally, I don't like the structure. I think a verb coming early, setting up the show, uh, is beneficial for the audience. But um, yeah, we're not German storytellers. I think the podcast would be a lot harder for us if we had to do it in German full stop, waiting for the verb at the end, much harder. I know, but it, it's it's such a thing that I want to break out of because I want to be able to, the push is always to be like a native, I guess, or to sound like a native. But how do you listen like a native? Like mm. I can get, you can learn a dialect and you can learn how to say the words correctly and you can learn the grammar and, and all of these different things. But the listening bit, I find really, like I understand 95% of what's said to me. No, I understand 95% of the content I listen to. I understand 100% of the conversations I'm in. But I can't keep my interest in some situations. When someone's mm. explaining something, it feels like it just it's interminable how long it takes. We were doing uh, the windows at the weekend, and my father-in-law was helping us. And he was explaining stuff. I just couldn't concentrate because mm-hmm. it was just like, I'm just, I don't know. I'm, the British brain's like fine-tuned to short sentences, isn't it? Like two clauses, three clauses max. <laughs> and then when it was like the eighth clause, I was like, oh, I wish I had a full stop here. I need to contemplate what you said. And I, th- I was thinking, is it because I have to sort of translate bits of the sentence that I need like a mental break? Mm. People are still wittering about things at us. I can, you can find that quite difficult to, to take in. Um, but I'm glad I'm not entirely on my own because I was beginning to wonder if I was going psychotic or something. No, you're definitely not. You're definitely not. I mean, obviously, the listening like a native isn't easy because the structures are and the length of senses are so different. And of course, active listening is a challenge, and it's like small filler words to to show your connection to the story, like "boar," mm. uh, "manor," like those kinds of words that I've picked up through my wife. And now I use them in English, which is very confusing talking to people back home uh, when you're peppering in sentences with boah. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody says that back home. Um, but I think the sentiment. Yeah, it just sounds like you're a bit weirdly horny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I have to re explain everything to my friends and, and my mother. Oh God, I don't want her to get that sentiment. Um, yeah, it's not easy. I feel you. I'm sure many, many listeners feel you. But I think as well, the other side of it is the way Germans, and it's the same in France and in the Netherlands as well, the approach they take to explaining information is you explain the sort of theoretical before you explain result. Okay. And so that can also be difficult when you're listening to the radio where you get a lot of the, the information that would come. Like, so if you, if you listen to British radio or American radio, it'll be 
situation, current situation, like current problems, like the, the sort of conclusion first, the summary first, and then they go into the detail and then they get to the conclusion. Whereas mm. a lot of content is the other way around where they talk about all the detail and then they talk about the summary. And so you, you sort of, I find that approach to explaining things and you see it in writing and you see it in articles and you see it in a lot of different ways. You even see it in very basic discussions I'll have with, with family or friends where they're explaining something almost backwards. Is it that that I'm having a problem with, that they have to explain everything in detail first before they tell us the key piece of information? might also be a little bit the way your family is set up as well because that I've, I've definitely experienced that, but I don't experience it with my in-laws. But I think they have a very different, like the Nord Ramos file on the pot style of communication. It's just a lot more, I don't want to say lazy, but I've never felt like, why are they explaining this in so much detail to me? Yeah, yeah. So, so, and it makes you feel like, am I, is it doing it because I'm, the think I'm an idiot? But actually, it's like, if my father in law was going to teach us about how to paint something, which is essentially what he was doing, we're painting, mm-hmm. we were just putting new uh, sealant on the, uh, on the wood around the garden that needed it, right? Mm-hmm. And we're just putting a new layer of, of wood sealant on it. And it's not a difficult task, but his explanation <laughs> started with, this is why we're doing it. Okay. And yeah, I was yeah. like, you don't need to explain that bit, but he kept explaining <laughs> it. And it's like, that's how they explain stuff. Is like, they'll be like, so this is a car. And I'm like, right. And you need to use it to go shopping. And I'm like, right. <laughs> yeah. Like, great. Can I get the shopping list? <laughs> you know, like, it'll be sort of, that's how it sometimes feels. And it can feel a little bit like, is it just me or is it just the way some people explain things where they have to sort of, the detail is key and the detail comes first. And it doesn't matter if you already know it. Let's be clear just so you know that the sky is blue and the grass is green and, and you're clearly a fucking idiot, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't say I've had that experience so often, but I look forward to your lecture on how sealant is produced. Uh, that <laughs> it's not how it's produced, it's how it's applied okay. to certain wooden surfaces. So that they missed the part on the production of the sealant itself. I didn't tell me, they didn't tell me about how it was produced. I did ask, but they said that was unimportant. <laughs> I was like, you well, this you do not need to know. <laughs> you literally started with, and God said, let there be light. So, I mean, I was assuming we'd get to it eventually. Um, yeah. Anyway, enough about my complaints. So Simon, you've got a reminder about something for the listeners to look out for. Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of people who have already done the survey and we love you for it. Like giving us this feedback is really, really helpful. But yeah, if there's anyone listening who thinks, oh, I forgot to do that last week. uh, Yeah, how about this week? We'd really appreciate it and it'll be up for another week or two. Um, But yeah, if we can get to a few more answers to these questions we can find out some interesting stuff and try and make the show better and it's also it's a very close call um on a few topics so we need decisions help us please you're our only hope oh god i love a star wars reference (laughs) yeah get out there there's some great feedback already like simon said some really good answers some really helpful little bits of information about just what you think about the the show and like all that information is so useful because it's sometimes just feel like we're shouting into the void a little bit so just hearing what you think some really supportive stuff as well Mm. but the more's the merrier more information if you've got something you think we can improve that's the kind of stuff that we're looking for too and uh there was a couple of answers that were like you better not be leaving yeah this is not why we're doing the survey the reason we're doing the survey is to make the show better 
not because we're we're, we're in desperate need of love and need to know that we're that the audience is listening to us. It's all right. We've got the statistics. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of that. I mean, okay, yeah, there's a little bit. It's not it's hurting <laughs> being told that you like us. Uh, uh, no, yeah, thank so, you. So yeah, more I feel of that loved. is not going to hurt. Uh, yeah, we love you too. Uh, we think you're amazing for listening to our show. Kisses. <laughs> So, Simon, how do you feel about Rammstein? Big fan? No, not really. <laughs> Sorry. Really? No, no, it's not my bag. Uh, I'm not really much of a, a, a metal person. Whenever I see videos, whenever I... The visual aspect is, is, is very impressive. But no, the music's never done it for me. It's funny you should mention the uh, theatricality of a Rammstein show because uh, that was a big part of why Munich was hoping to attract Rammstein to the Theresian visa mm. uh, in Munich for New Year's Eve. They were going to play a massive show on a massive stage and it was going to be the party to be at for New Year's. Except today the news came through that it has been cancelled yeah. for a variety of interesting reasons. There's been a lot of heat around this story since it was announced that Ramstein would uh, be performing at New Year, and it slowly sort of fell apart over a number of different reasons. It started at the beginning of August with the announcement that Ramstein were going to perform in the Theresian visa, which is the visa the location of Oktoberfest. Mm -hmm. And there was a little bit of consternation from various groups uh, for a lot of reasons. The city of Munich's Wirtschaftsreferent, which is a guy called Clemens Baumgartner, and that roughly translates as like economics head or business head, his responsibility is the Wiesen, this area, this Festplatz for the Oktoberfest, and other events too. And he was accused at the beginning of August in a letter from 110 members of the Verbands der Münchener Kulturveranstalter, which is the cultural organisations group. All 110 members wrote a letter basically saying that Baumgartner cared more about large artists, international artists, more than he did about Munich-based artists. Mm -hmm. And they claimed that Baumgartner was fast-tracking people such as Ed Sheeran, Linkin Park, so on and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, into prime locations that weren't available to other smaller cultural German acts. And they were saying that they didn't get access to things like the Olympic Park mm -hmm. or... Uh, when they had an event and they were looking for extra places to put it on, they weren't given the option of the Königsplatz, which is heavily regulated and things yeah. like that. The Theresen visa is, used, is going to be used, and this is quite kind of funny when you think about it. They announced the Ramstein concert, and then it turned out that actually nothing had been really agreed. And what had been agreed and contracts signed and everything organized was something called Winter Tollwood, which is this arts and crafts music festival that is on that site between the end of November and the end of 31st of December. So what you would have had if Ramstein had actually played was this giant theatrical Ramstein concert on one side of the Wiesen and on the other would be this very quaint arts and crafts new year type thing where they were playing swing music and you can imagine <laughs> the people who'd organized this tollwood thing were like what what are you doing like there's no way we can compete mm. sort of sonically with <laughs> ramstein not if we're playing tea music essentially and they were saying well we've signed all the contracts and you haven't even signed anything and you're already announcing it so there was a little bit of consternation around that but like i said today they've decided that and this is on tuesday the uh, 16th of august 
which is when we're recording, they've come out and the people organizing the Ramstein concert have said they're not going to actually put it on. They've withdrawn their application. Okay. And these people are quite interesting because they're the, uh, they're a group from Graz that are um, a company that are owned by this massive company called a Leutgeb, I think it's called, Entertainment Group. And they're headed by a very interesting character called Klaus Leutgeb from Graz. One of the... Uh, accusations made against Clemens Baumgartner, the the city of Munich's business head, was that he wasn't the business head of Graz, he was the business head of Munich, and that he was given too much support to this essentially out-of-towner. Okay. So there's like a weird xenophobia, but also like a, a cultural issue. There's all this stuff going on around it. What have you read about this story? What's, what's your thoughts on this idea of maybe big acts like Ramstein versus smaller cultural events or the support that's given to international events and how important they are. I mean, there's been some interesting divisions based on like who supported this idea before it was cancelled. Uh, so the SPD, the CSU and the FDP were all like, yeah, get Ramstein into town. Like, it'll be great for business. We'll make loads of money. We'll sell loads of tickets. And on the other side, the Greens, the UDP and the left were just like, you're crazy. Like, we can't do this yeah. on New Year's Eve because that's really soon in terms of planning an event this size. Like, normally you would hope to have maybe a year to plan something as huge as an event for 145,000 people. I mean, just the pyrotechnics alone of a Ramstein show, you need a couple of months to nail that down. And there's just this, like, the politics of positivity. Uh, so one of the CSU leaders, Manuel Pretzel, uh, said the city can send a signal of being cool, relaxed, and cosmopolitan. And I don't know if he's ever heard of Ramstein, but cool, sure. Relaxed? I don't think so. This is not <laughs> This is not a, a chilled-out evening uh, with some like light jazz. Uh, there's going to be fire and dudes flying around in angels' wings and songs about death. Literal flamethrowers. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be quite intense. Uh, and yeah, then they're just like, oh, it's the Greens. They're so stuffy because they don't want to unleash 145,000 fans onto, we've spoken about it before, New Year's Eve is one of the most chaotic and potentially most dangerous nights of the year. Mm. And police are already spread thin dealing with firework fires and people being drunk and fighting. They don't need an event of this size and scale to have to worry about as well. So yeah, it's just the notion of like, yeah, we'll put a Ramstein, and like everyone's like, woo, yeah, Ramstein in Munich, and then it's like, oh, actually, this is really <laughs> impractical, and we've left it really too late. So it will just be maybe they will just get a local Munich dude. Maybe it'll end up with being. Peter Maffei. <laughs> I mean, there's worse acts, right? <laughs> the master gold. The thing that it's, it's funny was this debate descended into one side going, well, we're just cooler than you are. That's all it is. We're just really cool. <laughs> and that's kind of where it went. You had the SPD, CSU, FDP lineup on one side going, this is going to be great for the city. And Clemens Baumgartner had already said, like, this is a really like an opportunity to put Munich on the map and make Munich seem like a, an exciting place. 
And then the Greens, who were against it because of security concerns, um, they were tainted with a brush of being stuffy. I mm. think that's what he described them as. Yeah. He said that maybe the, the Greens are too stuffy to have cool acts like Ramstein. And it just felt a little bit ridiculous when really their concern was, do you want to be on the map for having a giant concert or do you want to be on the map for really disastrous new year where loads of people get injured because we don't have enough security which is the the reality of a concert and the scale of 140,000 people it's it's massive of course the the nature of this particular beast of an industry the music industry big festivals and big shows they're not run by people who just want to put on a good show no. they are run by the most hardened capitalists possible and all they want to do is make as much money as they can and so I, I think this notion of like, oh, we'll do the security later. Like, we'll worry about that later. We need to make sure we sell the tickets, we get our vendors in place, and we have people selling their nine euro beers and six euro pretzels. Um, like, we need to make the money. And I'm sure a few people listening will have already seen the documentary on um, Woodstock 99 called Trainwreck mm. on Netflix, mm. which shows how bad this can be done. And again, 99 showed us that Limp Biscuit could genuinely nearly kill people. And so, yeah, I think a drunken crew on New Year's Eve revelers at a Ramstein festival, like, yeah, there could be fires. Uh, it could get out of hand. Um, mm -hmm. So it needs to be policed and secured very, very well. And I'm not sure that the CSU thought about that part when they were calling the Greens stuffy. And people carrying fireworks on that night as well, and then mm -hmm. you've got to be aware of that as an issue. But I think part of this seems to be, there's like a trend in Munich, and I'm not sure if it's happening anywhere else, but certainly in Munich at the moment for mega concerts. We were just talking earlier about the fact that later this month, Helena Fischer, the Queen of yeah. Schlager, will be performing at the Munich Messe yeah. uh, to an audience of potentially, was it 150,000? 150,000 people, yeah. My God. They've built this massive stage, this group, the same group who were hoping to have the Rammstein concert. Lloyd Gebb is the entertainment group, is the name of the company. They have built this, frankly, insane stage to have these giant concerts at the Munich Messe and they've got Helena Fischer later, they're going to have uh, Robbie Williams and some other acts perform. Mm -hmm. And it feels like, is this, is the reason the scale is so big, is it just pure rabid capitalism or is it because uh, sort of pandemic effect? We hadn't had any concerts for two years. So there's like a desire for scale of concert and they know there's a lot of demand. Like they know they'll get 145,000, 150,000 mm. for these bands because people have been locked away and have missed these events and want to go to these events, but also the big acts. And the city seemed to be more in favor of them. And certainly this accusation by the uh, Münchener uh, Kulturveranstalter saying that there was more support for these giant acts than there was for local-based events, which suggests that the local government's in favour of them as well. Do you reckon that's just pure pandemic effect? I think the pandemic obviously makes it more appealing to run these huge money-making events, mm. but I think the, the primary focus seems to be making the money. I mean, of course, this has a huge knock-on effect on the whole of the city of Munich. So mm -hmm. you mentioned Lena Fisher's on next week, 150,000 people. A couple of our friends, a couple of the listeners are going, shout out Katya and Stuart. Um, and they were thinking, oh, okay, we'll get a hotel and we'll stay overnight and then drive back the next day. Uh, guess how much the cheapest hotel was for Munich that night? 
Oh, God, it'll be like the Edinburgh Fringe, won't it? It'll be like thousands of euros or something. Not thousands, but 400. 400 euros oh for a hotel in Munich. And, of course, you add on your ticket price, which I think the Helena Fisher ones are around 100 euros for a standing. It could even be more than that. And then your drinks, your food, restaurant, like it's, it turns into pretty quickly, for two people, a thousand euro event. And that is insane. And uh, So Stuart's not going to drink and they're going to drive back that evening to save a huge amount of money. This is the problem. No? The whole of the business side of Munich, local government, they want hotels full. They want hotels charging as much money as possible. They want restaurants busy. Um, because, yeah, they all need to make back some of the scratch they lost in the last couple of years. And so, yeah, I think this is money-driven, business-driven. And, yeah, Helena Fisher ain't performing for free either. No? She's one of the richest uh, musicians in the world. So, yeah, it's just all its all about the Euro, baby. Yeah, I think that's probably there's probably a truth in that. I kind of had a feeling that there's an element of populism in there, like give the people what they want, bread and circuses, big events, people haven't had a chance to go to them. If we're the ones who are delivering these events, that'll look good come the Bavarian election next year. You know, that that kind of what, what my feeling was about it. Like, we'll be seen as the ones who are bringing these big acts. But I was like thinking, it's so narrow-minded, short-sighted to put all this money into quite homogenized, large-scale stadium events at the expense of the things that make your city or your town interesting, mm. which are the quaint, weird little jazz festivals and the weird different Christmas markets in different parts of the city. And that's the culture, right? That's the art. That's the, the things that people want to see. Like sure. People are going to come to Munich for big events. If Ramstein or Ed Sheeran or, or Helena Fisher are playing, but also you want them to be coming. Cause there's, there's other things happening that aren't just industrial homogenized shite, essentially mm. uh, on a big stage. Like I can't think of anything. Wor- I'm sure there's a lot of people who like our friends who are going to see Helena Fisher, who like love it. It's that that's for them. I can't think of anything worse than standing in a crowd of 150,000 people <laughs> watching a concert. I can't imagine that being my environment to enjoy music, but like that's how some people enjoy it. But I do think that I'd rather have winter tollwood or whatever it's called than a Ramstein event. I'm looking forward to seeing Marcus Soda bring <laughs> Ramstein <laughs> and Helena Fischer to the stage. He'll be wearing some lovely Trachten. It will be a celebration of all things Munich. And then, yeah, vote for me. I fucking wouldn't be surprised if he did. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he turned up. Vote for me. I brought this to your city. Yeah. <laughs> now, watch this guy from Ramstein be sick into a bucket. <laughs> and like a mega widescreen TV looking down like Big Brother. Yeah. <laughs> But ultimately, I think reality is is dawned on these people that maybe having a concert at this scale and the security issues around it just isn't sensible. No. So here's hoping that they don't do anything um, daft like try and force it through or try and push it through in different means. I guess we'll wait and see. I have a feeling this is going to come back, but we'll see. We've covered stories about the city of Munich changing its mind quite a few times on events similar to this. So yeah. Wouldn't be surprised if there's an update at some point in the future. So it's, it's Tuesday night as we record, and for most of the country, yesterday gave us rain for the first time in a while. Uh, my garden has been gasping for it. My grass is cooked beyond all recognition. And the news is full of stories 
of significant rivers all over Europe uh, in a very, very serious condition. And that's revealed a quite an interesting topic along the way, which is hunger stones. Um, we've seen them on social media and a couple of other newspapers have picked them up as well. And if you haven't heard of them, hunger stones are basically famine memorials, uh, which is a pretty grim type of memorial to have to make. And there are lots of these found uh, in Germany uh, and also some ethnic German settlements throughout Europe in the 15th to the 19th century. So it's been going on for a very, very long time. And these stones were either carved when revealed or they were embedded into a river during a drought to reveal the water level uh, as a warning uh, to future generations uh, that if you can see the stone and these markings, it means you're about to go into some very, very hard times. And we have lots of examples of these all over Europe. But yeah, Nick at the start of the show gave us the all without saying uh, with Wenn du mich siehst, dann weine, which translates literally as if you see me, weep. And this comes from a hunger stone in the river Elbe. Um, and it's actually located in the Czech Republic. And this is a warning, and it is visible again. Uh, so it means that there is going to be some hard times in a very historical way. So yeah, hunger stones are very, very bad news, and they are visible. Uh, some of them for the first time in a few years. Some of them have been hiding for a lot longer than that. And of course, with this, we are seeing real disruption to German industry. Uh, the Rhine... Uh, is of course a very significant river used for shipping up and down the country transporting all sorts of raw materials for all sorts of industries and ships are now being limited in some parts to having 30 percent uh, load capacity i think is the current regulation because there's just not enough water and of course with rivers like the rhine that were of logistical importance during the war when these rivers get very very low we also find bombs at the bottom of them so it makes it very very dangerous for transport uh, to be done it's all terrifying it's all kind of bad news and i think pretty much the only sort of interesting oh that's nice take is the hunger stone uh, at the moment uh, so nick have you have you seen much about these guys yeah i've seen a few um articles like this on not just the hunger stones but i read an article in the u.s that was talking about something similar where there was lakes drying up and they were finding cars and dead bodies from the mafia yeah. and weapons that have been hidden and thrown away in the lakes and stuff like this so uh, and only i think in the start of june uh, there was reports from rome that they'd rediscovered the foundation of nero's bridge in rome that had been mm -hmm. lost because the water levels were so low there so yeah i mean it's quite terrifying it's like these messages from the past right mm -hmm. like it, and i think they're quite blunt but they were obviously to warn people in history and certainly this one from the elba river is from what was it 1616 i think yeah and it was it was quite a sensible early warning signal to people like things are going to get bad be aware and if and maybe it was also a warning to the affluent to start barricading their doors and because as soon as you start having famines you start having social unrest right yeah um which might be a lesson to i don't know politicians to do something about it mm. you know but it is it's blunt and it's scary it's not the first time these stones have been seen for sure they've been seen i think 2018 was the last time we saw them but they've come up periodically through time uh, to be seen and there's lots of different ones there's lots of different types and there's a lot all around germany showing 
really just how like fragile the ecosystem, how fragile the environment has been and how fragile people's lives can be when it comes to the environment. I think that's the larger message is that yeah. like they knew in the past how dangerous this was and we're sort of seeing it. It's kind of a news story. Uh, the Times had the goal to write an entire article about the Rhine water levels being reduced but didn't mention climate change at all. Yeah. It's become a, a bit ridiculous. We're seeing all these examples and there's still people going, oh, well, you know, well, we still need to think about people who drive fast on the Autobahn. And you're like, <laughs> at what point do we start thinking about maybe it's not great that all our rivers are drying up. It's not just in Germany. It's in France as well. It's mm. in Spain. It's lots of places experiencing this kind of stuff. You're having forest fires and environmental impact. But the stones themselves are... Yeah, I mean, the warnings from history are usually ones you should take heed of mm. uh, rather than ignore. There's actually a stone in Virgassen that's in the Weser that's the most decorated hunger stone, and it's got dates on there from the 1800s, 1840, 42, 47, 50, 57, 58, 59, 1865, 1874, going all the way up to 1959, which says, again, how this is a common issue for, for people, common enough that they would mark it in a, a very permanent kind of way. And there's been some devastating droughts before, and it looks like this is, I mean, they were talking about mega droughts in the 15th mm. and 19th century but i get the feeling that we're not quite at the concept of mega drought but we're certainly having questions asked about uh, how much water we're using should we have a hose pipe ban certainly in our area that's been a local discussion mm. um so i think it's it's terrifying but also unsurprising yeah. and i think we ignore these markers at our peril mm. especially when you consider how important not just i mean the rhine is the the, the big one because it's, it's important not just for ecology or the environmental perspective mm. but actually they're trying to ship a lot of fuel and coal and things like that down that river in order to avoid the issues surrounding the energy crisis that germany's yeah. currently suffering from and they can't ship those things because basically a lack of investment in the shipping lanes and I read a quite interesting article that was with Jens Schwannen, who is the spokesman for like the barges and and the sort of riverways. And he was talking about how basically we've ignored the problem because yeah. it wasn't important. Shipping wasn't important. And he says on the Rhine, there's three or four bottlenecks that need to be fixed. They need to be deepened. And they need to be, yeah, probably checked for obstacles and ammunitions and things like that. But just just hasn't been done. And I can't help but thinking, yeah, there's just another another thing we can add to the list of what 15 years of being on pause under Angela Merkel was. I know it's very common now to complain about and blame everything. Well, actually, it isn't. That's not true. I think I feel like the only person who's going, do you remember when Angela Merkel was in charge for 15 years and fuck all <coughs> happened? Yeah, do you remember? And it seems like it happens all the time with every different thing. It happens with... Relations with Russia, the Ukraine, happens with uh, infrastructure, it's happening with the environment, it's happening with nuclear power, it's happening with all this different stuff. And yet Merkel will pop up at some well-crafted and organized PR event and there'll be some playful journalist who's like, oh, oh Angela, remember when you were great? And she'll go, yeah, I do remember. And they, oh, it was great <laughs> when you were great, wasn't it? And oh, yeah, it was. And they do that for two hours. And then she goes home and no one's like, do you remember how you didn't invest in anything for 15 years? Do you remember when all the bridges were collapsing because you didn't invest in anything because you were so desperate about reducing the debt, but you didn't think about actually investing in anything? 
And it's just another thing. And I'm just like, how many of these are we going to see before the history books don't go, oh, Angela Merkel's safe pair of hands. It'll be Angela Merkel wasted a fucking time for 15 years. Um, but I've said my piece. But that's how I feel about it. I just feel like, why are we lionizing this person who seems to have actually done fuck all? And if anything, has been a detriment. Like, safe pair of hands, my fucking ass. Maybe I'm alone in this concept. I <laughs> not alone, that's for sure. Definitely see a lot of the sentiment online. Um, but yeah. that's not what you're saying I'm just an online anger spod <laughs> and just one final thing before we move on from the Hung Stones is a little shout out to one of our listeners an old guest host uh, Dilly because she points out a lot of people have been asking why these messages like Vendumisi's Dan Vinen uh, are written upside down and it's because yeah people have been kneeling at the side of the river to gather water and then they'd see this message and if you had it the right way up of course no one was thinking about cameras uh, with these messages in the 1600s um, <laughs> so yeah it's another quite a sharp realization that people were literally there on their knees on the edge of the river trying to get what they needed to survive and yeah this warning about crop failures and looming price increases of food I mean, we're already living in times of high inflation on groceries, and yeah, this does not bode well for those prices in the future either. So yeah, it's a pretty good sentiment. Cry. Uh, there, are lot, there are lots of things to cry about at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah, tell me about it. Already given a little shout out to Netflix in this episode with their Woodstock 99 uh, documentary, and I got caught up in another one that's kind of changed a few things for me. And this is a documentary called The Game Changers. Uh, more on what's contained in just a second. But it sort of linked to this topic that we can talk about on the show because it talked about a German in it. And I was like, aha, material, gimme. And it cited a man called Justus von Liebig, apparently one of the most famous of European chemists. Heard of him before, Nick? I can't say that I have, no. Shows he's not that famous then, ha! <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he was brought up in this uh, documentary because a quote that he gave has basically shaped American attitudes towards meat and vegetarianism. And yeah, I say this documentary has kind of shaped a few things for me. Uh, so before we get into what he said, Quick summary, he was educated at universities of Bonn and Erlangen, and he got his diploma of Doctor of Philosophy at the age of 19, so well done, Justus. Uh, and two years later, um, he was named Professor Extraordinary uh, of Chemistry at Gießen, and in 1832 became a chair at München, and all the scientific societies of Europe wanted this man involved. So yeah. He was a big wig in the, in the chemistry departments of the uh, of the middle 1800s, and he spent a lot of time investigating nutrition. Like that was one of his key things: plant life and nutrition. And he gave an interesting quote that I thought we could talk about, where he said, "Certain it is that of three men, of whom the one has fed upon ox flesh and bread, the other upon bread and cheese, the third upon potatoes." Each considers it a peculiar hardship from quite different points of view. Yet, in fact, the only difference between them is the action of the peculiar elements of each food upon the brain and nervous system. And so he was saying that basically, yeah, it doesn't matter what you eat, you're going to be annoyed at eating exclusively these things. Uh, but those ingredients, those foodstuffs would affect the way you think uh, as well. And he even went so far to say that a bear kept in a zoo, if it was just fed bread, 
for its nourishment would be passive and mild and lovely, but if you give it just two days of flesh, uh, it would make it vicious, aggressive, and even dangerous to his attendants. Uh, so he also cited this idea of that meat for carnivores, for omnivores, would make them more aggressive, uh, more more passionate beings. Um, so Nick, do you find this to be the case? If you eat a load of meat, do you get more aggressive? Are you at risk to your handler? Yeah, yeah, I'm also biting the, the zookeeper's <laughs> hand. No, um, I'll be honest, if I eat meat, I feel sleepy. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah. Want to lie down and have a little snooze? <laughs> yeah, that's what most bears are doing at the zoo. So I think we know just they're giving a bit too much pork pie by the looks of it. And so the quote that led uh, the USDA, uh, who is, of course, one of the main health and food organizations in the US, Justus von Liebig hypothesized that, quote, muscular energy came from animal protein, end quote, and that, quote, vegetarians were theoretically incapable of prolonged exercise. Now, that second quote there, that vegetarians are incapable of prolonged exercise, shaped the entire thinking of the USDA when they created their guidelines for nutrition for the American public. And this has made America a very meat-focused country in terms of its protein. And yeah, that's not really what he actually discovered. A lot of his writings and studies showed that plant-based protein was also very, very good for you and could provide everything you needed. But that one sentiment about vegetarian and people not being able to exercise for extended periods has meant that it's kind of become, obviously vegetarianism is growing in the US today as is veganism. But for a long time, if you wanted to be a real man, uh, all the adverts were telling you, you needed to eat a steak, you needed to eat a loads of beef. And even today we see this in American advertising. For example, Arby's, uh, a restaurant that I always wanted to go to but never did because it looked kind of disgusting. Uh, you know the catchphrase for Arby's, Nick? Um, Eat lots of food. Um, num, 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 num. It's not far from that. It is, we have the meat. <laughs> um, of course it is. That's their selling point. We have the meat. And this shows what the sort of setting is, the default setting for the American public that a good meal is packed with meat. Uh, The more meat, the merrier. And of course, if we look at like New York deli culture, if you order uh, a corned beef sandwich or a pastrami, you're going to get slice upon slice upon slice upon slice of these meats, an obscene amount of meat. No sandwich should have that amount of meat, but it's considered the right way of doing it. That's how you get your protein, uh, Americans. And yeah, this is really not, what the world needs right now. Um, and I say, I watched this documentary, The Game Changers, which is actually executive produced by Arnold Schwarzenegger, among a load of other quite famous people. And it focused on the story of an MMA fighter, a UFC fighter from the UK, who uh, suffered an injury and was trying to read up and find out the best way that he could recover from that injury. And in his investigations, he realized that a plant-based diet had basically been hidden from him uh, in the general public and general media as being the best possible diet for his his sporting uh, potential, for his recovery potential, and for his environmental impact. And yeah, the documentary has worked uh, <laughs> to the point that I've not eaten meat uh, since I watched it. Uh, I have 
a couple of slices of salami left over in my fridge that I'm going to make my wife eat uh, at some point by surprising a sandwich I make for her. And yeah, I'm going to, I've decided I'm going to shift as much as I can at the moment towards a, a plant based diet. So, Nick, can I tempt you to the pea side of life? The pea side of life? That sounds a lot more uh, golden shower than I was expecting, <laughs> but that's a different, that's another episode. That's next week. Yeah, everything everything's made of peas now, no? When it comes to my diet, we've talked about my diet. Like, it's not great a lot of the time. A lot of the time I have to be really careful. What I've found works for me, and I think it's about different people have different metabolisms. Like, there isn't a uniform way of doing it. And I'm always wary when someone, you get a lot of this, there's like a really famous guy in America who's sort of like, I eat uh, from snout to who for snout a tail or some shit like mm-hmm. that and it's all about like eat everything and eat the liver and it's great for you and i'm like yeah it's great but like liver does taste freaking awful and like sorry but that's just my opinion i've tried not it always like i just there's stuff that i don't want to eat particularly and it's not it maybe is acculturation but i don't really think it is i think i've tasted liver and it tasted like urine flavored meat essentially <laughs> like that's what it tastes like it's very urine heavy this episode um, I don't mind it if you like if that's what you want. I, don't, I could eat more plant based meals, and 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 honestly, I could do without a lot of meat in my diet, especially during the summer. I found I could just be a vegetarian in the summer, and I would feel much better because we've talked about my indigestion issues when it comes to eating barbecues and and how eating barbecues late mm-hmm. on a Sunday does no good for me on a Monday morning. There's a reason for that. There's a lot of red meat. There's a lot of and there's obviously the alcohol, but there is the contents of of what I'm eating as well. I think. There's a lot of people who make a name for themselves or can get a lot of heat out of the binary of like, you're either a vegan or you're not. And it's on both sides, right? Like, and it's sort of extreme perception. I find having more vegetables in my diet, I feel better, but I also do want to eat some meat, but not for every meal. I'm quite happy with that. Um, It was interesting that you talked about this story or having this story in the episode because only today uh, one of the advisors to the government in Britain said like we need to get British people to eat less meat mm-hmm. uh, if we're going to deal with climate change yeah uh, that's a massive issue and I think it is I think we've got to think about how and where our food comes from and how much land it uses and do we really need to have loads of steaks everywhere like, is it is that really the key? Is it freedom to eat a steak on a barbecue? Can we not have other options? Uh, but also during the year as well, like, what can we vary our diets a little bit? I don't think it's necessarily about eating one thing. And I think this is something that your scientist friend, <laughs> Justice von Liebig, <laughs> got right, which is, like, you will get bored if you eat the same thing over and over again. I think mm. that's one of the challenges that vegans have. I think... You can start being a vegan and go, I'll just eat salads. And then after a week of that, you're like, oh my God, like I can't do that. You need to find something more interesting, which is why you end up with the, was it the amazing burger or the mm-hmm. incredible burger? This thing that's made with like bean sprouts and stuff. And it's like, yeah. a, I had quite a good vegan burger a few weeks ago and it had the same consistency and texture as meat. And I was quite nice and I was quite happy with that. I could eat one of those on a, a barbecue no problem so i don't think i've got no issues really i think this is the thing that's made me take this decision i found it quite easy to make this decision because i know from experience that there are some really fantastic options in aldi 
um, for meat replacement things that are basically, yeah, just it looks the same or it looks similar and it tastes the same and tastes um, like you want it to. And I've got a load of stuff in my fridge at the moment that I'm perfectly happy to eat as a meat alternative. Tastes great and it's just better. It's better for me. It's better for the environment. And there's no animal with eyes that have died to end up on my plate. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely shifting in this direction. And the reason I thought it was interesting and definitely worth talking about on the show is that there are today lots of examples of people that are performing to the highest levels uh, in sports as vegans. And so I thought we'd give a, a couple of shout outs because I think a lot of old school meat eating mentality is all like, oh, they're, they, they're weak or like that you'll die. How are you going to survive just eating all this vegetables? Um, and there's just a list of these incredible athletes uh, operating at the highest possible level as vegans. And so we've got a couple of interesting ones to start off with. First one is a man called Harvey Lewis, uh, who's an ultra marathon runner. Um, ultra marathon runners are, yeah, sadistic people doing things to their body that's very very tough and harvey lewis is is one of the the toughest of them all he's twice won the badwater ultra marathon which is often spoken about as being the toughest in the world 135 mile race in extreme temperatures massive height gains and losses it is crazy and yeah he's powered by vegetables i'm not surprised by that when i started my new diet and it's not a diet that i've done massive amounts of research on it was just like based on stuff that i've done before and the stuff that i knew worked cutting out sugar things like that but i don't eat breakfast anymore that's something i don't do mm -hmm. after a couple of weeks it was fine like i know everyone says oh breakfast the most important meal of the day well, actually i haven't found that at all i found i quite sluggish in the morning mm -hmm. and often it's because i was eating too much for breakfast and now i don't and I eat quite a lot for dinner and actually by the time i get to lunch i've burnt off most of those calories from the dinner the night before and then i feel fine and i feel hungry again actually hungry as opposed to like i wake up and i eat because i'm told that that's what i'm meant to do and i think he's a good example of someone's metabolism understanding the nutritional requirements understanding what fuel works for him because essentially i think that's probably how he sees it is i have to eat these many calories or i have to eat. when mm -hmm. you're doing something as intense as is what he's doing like he must be a bit of a masochist, right? <laughs> a little bit to do that, yeah. Like putting yourself through that. I think you have to run clean and you have to be very careful about your nutrition to do something that's as physically demanding as an ultra marathon. There's mm. no pissing about there. Like it's not just the diet, it's things like putting plasters over your nipples and what kind of textures <laughs> of clothing you wear. You're really thinking about everything because it can be those minimal gains that make you capable of performing at your peak. And he doesn't, if you look at him, doesn't look like a traditional athlete, does he? He's quite a spindly looking guy. Well, I mean, of course, this is the interesting thing about ultra marathon runners and marathon runners, like long distance runners in general. They're not packed full of like muscles. Like they're very, very, very lean, very, very skinny. And so this is kind of one of these examples where people will be like, yeah, but look at him. Like he's not packed with protein. Uh, and so let's jump to our next example, which is uh, Lawrence Ecolier, who is a vegan boxer. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it shows that, I mean, he's he's ripped, uh, is Lawrence. And yeah, he's he was 2018 Commonwealth Cruiserweight title holder. Uh, and 2019, he won the British and European titles in the same category. And he's won the world title in 2020. And so yeah, he was able to pack on muscle and to operate in 
a highly explosive sport compared to ultramarathon running. Um, and there's a few other fighters that we'll talk about in a second. So you can be big and fast and powerful powered on a vegan diet. It's like that lad who beat Anthony Joshua a couple of months ago. Oh, Louise. Yeah, that's, that's about a year ago now. Yeah. He doesn't look like a traditional athlete, but he punches like a like a traction engine, you know? He's 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 got pure power and it's form. And I think for certain sports, I can't say it for every sport, I'm certainly not an expert, but there's elements of where your assumption is, oh, well, he's massive, so he must be good at boxing. He's a big guy, right? He's got big muscles. He looks like Tyson, you know? But actually, on the certainly lower weight classes, not necessarily heavyweight, you don't have to be the most athletic person or have the biggest muscles because a lot of it are about form and technique. And so I would have thought vegan options would be actually quite good. Keeps you light on your feet. Again, like running running a little bit. You're not as sluggish maybe when it comes to the diet you're eating. I think there's a lot of different elements in, involved. I, I, I do wonder if it was a sport like sumo wrestling. I can't imagine veganism being such a big take up when it comes to being a sumo wrestler but like again <laughs> i'm not an expert on sumo so maybe there is a vegan sumo. maybe i'm doing them a disservice maybe they're all vegans who knows i think a lot of them are vegetarian uh, as it happens sumos yeah more i'll have to google that later but we do have a couple more to go through on the list so just finished with like five uh, or six like huge superstars. Uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, is vegan. Wow, interesting. I wonder if that affects his concentration. Uh, you mentioned fuel, and that's exactly the term that he used to describe how he feels about it. He really? views himself in terms of a race car, and the fuel you put in it mm -hmm. has a dramatic effect on performance. And he said since he turned vegan, everything is better in terms of concentration, in terms of performance everything like there is no mm. metric that he's measured on and f1 drivers are measured in every way everything is better i wonder if vegan diets like just better for mentally i don't know it just feels like that might be a, a correlation or maybe it's causation i don't know the next one on the list probably doesn't help that argument too much because it's nate diaz um who's the, a ufc fighter who's of course very very famous and about to leave the ufc by the looks of it uh, of course beat conor mcgregor um in his most famous of victories and of course, Nate is also famous for smoking a huge amount of cannabis. Uh, so <laughs> when you're watching his interviews, you can't tell if it's just being hit in the head as a profession, smoking a lot of weed, or if the veganism isn't working for his brain function. But Nate Diaz is literally one of the toughest dudes on the planet. And it's often said that he could fight anyone. And if there is no limit to how long that fight goes on, he will always win. Uh, he is a man that does not quit, does not give up, and will keep going to the end. Uh, and he's powered on a vegan diet. <laughs> We've already mentioned big boxers. David Hay, former British heavyweight monster. He is uh, a vegan. Uh, next one, sceptical about what goes in his body, Novak Djokovic, uh, who, of course, anti-vax, um, but pro-gamuza. Uh, so how do you feel about Novak now? Um, I still think he's a massive turd, so... <laughs> Okay, I don't. I don't really know what I meant to say about him. Like, I don't actually believe in Djokovic. Yeah, he's the boogeyman. I don't believe he exists. I think he's actually been made up by the <laughs> by the queer Duncan. I don't think he actually exists. Have you ever seen him? Have you ever seen him? I've never seen him in face to face. Never seen him. I think he's computer generated. Yeah, Boris Becker's behind it. He was his coach. Huh? No, no, I think Boris Becker's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next one, I'm sure you do believe in Mike Tyson. Iron Mike Tyson. He's a vegan. Uh, he wasn't during his career, but I don't think. Uh, might have to double-check that at some point. 
But yeah, today at least Mike Tyson is a vegan and it's going very well for him. And the final one on this list is one of the participants of the documentary, one of the focuses of the Game Changers. Uh, and he is a very, very interesting figure. He's called Patrick Baboumian, uh, an Iranian-born German-Armenian retired strongman and former bodybuilder. And yeah, strongmen, they eat ridiculous amounts of food during competition periods, thousands upon thousands of calories to fuel themselves for the extreme power that they require. Uh, and yeah, he's got three world records as well. Uh, 2009 world record log lift, 2012 beer keg lifting champ world record, and 2012 he also got the record for the front hold, where he held 20 kilos out in front of him from the wrist uh, for one and a half minutes nearly. It is terrifying to watch. Crikey. So this is a dude who's insanely strong, one of the strongest men on the planet, and he is also powered purely by vegetables. Um, and yeah, a really, really convincing argument he made throughout the show. So I would definitely recommend checking him out on the documentary. I wonder if these, like, especially these sports stars that are in combat sports, I wonder if all those sarky Facebook and Twitter trolls who always have a go at vegans would have as much to say if Mike Tyson was the vegan that they were talking to. I have a feeling they would be a little less uh, pointed with their criticism of plant-based diets absolutely and i think this is one of the reasons i, I thought it'd be good to talk about this because obviously we're, we're a small platform but i think highlighting that there are people at, at the very very top of their very very difficult and complex uh, sporting categories achieving all of this while, while on a diet that's viewed with skepticism by large parts of the population uh, i think can only be a positive thing and the final person who was, as I already said, was the producer of this documentary, uh, was the governator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is also vegan. Uh, now, in his heyday, he was eating steak for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, uh, I think 12 to 24 eggs a day. Uh, and now he gets all of his nutrition from a plant-based diet and, again, says that it's the healthiest he's ever felt and in many metrics, it's better than he's ever been. Um, so yeah, are you going to argue with Mike Tyson and Arnold Schwarzenegger? I don't think so. <laughs> it depends. How much of a head start do I have? I mean, they're both pretty old now, so you might be able to get away in a foot race, but Tyson's in good shape again these days. Um, I have a feeling they both catch me. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so with Arnie as a topic, I mean, we have to talk about it really. Like, what's, what's his best film? Uh, well, I know what his best film is. I'm pretty sure you don't know what his best film is. I'm pretty confident in what the best film is. We need to settle this because I think this is a, is a key topic for the show. I think it's time for a slam slam. Slam slam! Oh my God! Oh no! It cannot be! It's the slam slam! Right, you, you ready? Because, like... I'm, I'm feeling hypes. I'm ready for this. Oh, yeah, I'm totally ready. Yeah, your your film can't lick the boots of the film that I'm choosing, man. I'm choosing the most obvious, amazing Schwarzenegger movie. Are you going to choose some shit like Kindergarten Cop or something nonsense? Ah, oh, oh, come okay. on, man. What do you think I am? A fucking amateur Kindergarten <laughs> Cop. You're going to pop up here with Junior, aren't you? Come on, admit it. <laughs> Junior is your favourite Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. No, it's not. Okay. The best one, the absolute best one, no question about it, is... Commando! Wait. What? Do you like the same film? Oh. It's not much of a schlan slam, is it? It's no schlan slam at all. Maybe next week? <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Stallone next week. Which expendable do you like? 
<laughs> Jason Statham. I like Jason Statham. Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> ding, ding. Hallo zusammen. Servus. That brings us to the end of the show. We're off to see Marcus Soda awkwardly introduce Helena Fischer to 150,000 Munich residents. It's embarrassing, yo. <laughs> it is embarrassing. But if you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes? It only takes a minute and can really, really help us. You can also now give us stars on Spotify. So chuck some of them our way if you feel so inclined. Retweet us, share a link or post with the hashtag Decades From Home all lowercase on Twitter or Instagram. You can also support us by going to ko-fi.com forward slash decades from home and contributing to help us buy all of the Schwarzenegger back catalogue to settle this dispute once and for all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we basically agree that it's going to be eight versions of Commando. I would like to reiterate what Simon said about Spotify stars. If you are listening to this bit, it suggests to me that you're a true fan of Decades From Home, that you've managed to get all the way to the end. If you were listening to this and you haven't rated us on Spotify, do it now. Go and rate us. It really helps us. Write a review. Tweet at us. Any of these things can really, really help, especially if you're a new listener. Tell us how you're enjoying the podcast. So, as ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home, and you can tweet me at 40% German. You can also get us on 40%German at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40%German.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss. Ciao.